How many of you remember the original Jurassic Park movie? 1993 movie. Yeah, a bunch of you. Uh, my kids still like it here today. They've come out with a bunch since then. But uh, if, you, if you didn't see the, the Jurassic Park movies and the first one specifically, it was a science fiction adventure, had some scientists who were visiting an amusement park where they were genetically engineering dinosaurs, right? And, and growing dinosaurs uh, from DNA. And so uh, the characters are Sam Neill, who's Dr. Grant. He's the geologist. And then there's Laura Dern. She's uh, Dr. Ellie Sattler. She's the paleobotanist. And then you have my favorite actor, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and he plays this great sort of curmudgeon character known as Dr. Ian Malcolm. And he's a mathematician who specializes in a branch of mathematics known as chaos theory. Anybody remember that, chaos theory? In fact, there's this one scene right at the beginning of the movie uh, where they bring these guys in and they're, they're telling them how they're going to take these tours. And he's like grilling the, uh, Dr. Malcolm is grilling the, uh, um, the main guy who like owns the whole park. And he's like, you plan to have dinosaurs on the tour, right? Like, what could go wrong? And then there's a scene, and he's saying, you know what? The Tyrannosaurus Rex, it doesn't obey um, all the rules, set patterns, or park schedules. He says it's the essence of chaos, chaos theory, right? And the, and the female actor, Ellie, like, I'm, I'm not clear on chaos. What are you talking about? So he says it's the unpredictability of complex systems. In other words, he says it's the butterfly effect. Everybody remember that term? The butterfly effect. And that means a butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, China, and in Central Park you get rain instead of sunshine. Like somehow tiny, minute differences can ripple to make big differences in the end. And then this scene's really funny because she's like, that like went over my head. How does that work? Which I agree. I'm like, how does that work, right? And so he's like, let me, let me demonstrate. He grabs a glass of water, grabs her hand. He's flirting with her, right? And he says, uh, he puts a drop of water and says, which way is it going to roll off? She's like, I don't know, uh, you know, to the right. And so it does. And then he goes, let's do it one more time. And this time it goes the opposite direction. He's like, see, that's, uh, that's chaos theory. Tiny variables in the equation. It's unpredictable. And the scene ends with the, the geologist, Dr. Grant, jumping out of a moving vehicle because he sees a, a sick tri uh, triceratops. You remember that? Yeah. And then she jumps out after him. And then uh, the scene ends with Malcolm there saying, see, I'm here in the car talking to myself. That's chaos theory. So chaos theory, the butterfly effect. And of course, in the movie, something unpredictable happens. The dinosaurs escape, right? And start eating everyone. Go figure. And what was actually unpredictable is that plot line, dinosaurs eating everyone, with all the movies they put out since then, would gross $6 billion. Plot line, yeah, simple plot line. Uh, I couldn't have seen that one coming. But here, here's the thing. You probably don't spend a lot of time in your daily life thinking about the effects of the smallest, that the smallest choices have on your life and those around you. you. Probably don't do that, right? We just go about our lives most of the time. But think about all the choices and circumstances that stacked up to make you the person you are. Maybe how your parents met. Maybe where you were born. When you were born that chance opportunity you took that led you into the career you're in here, how your kids um, met their mother, right? Uh, or for me, it was like uh, 
my wife came home from the mission field for four years and just happened to decide to come to church at a young adult service the next day after she got home from Cyprus. And I saw her, and I walked up and said, hey, what's your name is? And she hated my ball cap, but she saw uh, my eyes under it. And I'm like, well, he has nice eyes. I'll give him a shot. And as they say, the rest is history, right? And I think, like, what if she'd stayed home that night? She might have gone next, you know, the next week and met some guy named Larry. Sorry if your name's Larry. Nothing wrong with that. But, right? Sometimes life feels very random, doesn't it? Now, when it comes to the seeming randomness of life, there's a couple of options. One, yeah, it's just random. It's completely ununderstandable. We have no way of comprehending how a butterfly's wings in China could affect us here. It's completely random. We can't understand it. Or there is someone who understands it, who comprehends it, and actually guides it all towards a purpose and a plan. And in the scriptures, we see that Jesus claims that this person, there is such a person, and this person is actually the one true God, your heavenly father. In fact, he'll say something in Matthew. He's like, hey, two sparrows, two little sparrows, they're sold for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall outside of your father's care. Like he sees, he cares. He says, even the very hairs on your head are numbered. And since it's Father's Day, I'll tell a bad um, dad joke. It's really easy for some of you, right? I tell it all the time. So. He says, don't be afraid. You're worth much more than a sparrow. That God actually sees. God cares. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing happens that catches him by surprise. And while this is comforting, if we're honest, it's also kind of difficult. Because life is hard, and lots of lousy things actually happen in life, don't they? The implication for Jesus is they don't take God by surprise. And so I think for us, the question we often ask is, why God? Why? Because it's much easier to think that somehow this, that you didn't know about this thing than somehow you knew, and yet you didn't do anything about it. And that ties into a bigger picture of something we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you start turning on over to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, what we saw, actually, we're going we're gonna to read through a passage. Jason preached this whole passage. I'm going to read it here in just a minute just to set it up, and then we're going to zoom in on one big concept that this passage introduces. And last week, Jason looked at this chapter and showed how this first chapter, the first part of the book of Ephesians, should affect our identity. It should affect the voice we hear about ourselves. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to dive right on in, and we're going to read from verses 3 to 14, and then we'll come back and go over it. Here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole first section, it's praise, it's worship, it's like we do here in song, but this is Paul writing it. This is worship to the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him. 
before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I love the language Paul uses in this. I mean, the lav- he lavished his grace on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. not like amazing? That section, there is so much theology packed in there. That is like, you know, months of sermon series. If we just took one statement at a time and walked through it, we're not, we're going to try to do the book of Ephesians uh, in less than two years. So um, we're not going to do that. Okay. We're going to move a little faster. You can go and dive into it on your own because it's just so rich. It's so packed full. But what I want to do today is zoom in and talk about um, one of these things which actually is kind of difficult and has caused a lot of discussion and a lot of argument in the church over the last 500 or so years. And we'll pick that back up and put up one verse, and that's verse 11. It says this, in him, we were also, everybody help me with the, the, the yellow words. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of what? His will. So Paul says, God had a plan. He planned things ahead of time. And you were chosen in this passage. We were chosen. Now, as we dive into this passage, let me just uh, uh, set this up by saying this. We have a value around here, and it's this. We are lifelong learners. And, and here's what that means. Number one, it means that we recognize we don't know everything, and we're still figuring things out. Uh, I'm still figuring things out. In fact, when I dive into messages, I'm learning new stuff all the time. Sometimes things that challenge my perceptions or what I thought before and force me to go, is that really like what the scripture says about this? And that also means that, uh, that people smarter than us have been arguing about these things for hundreds or thousands of years. So in some of these things, people way, way smarter than me. I mean, like uh, it's a guy named John Calvin. He wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion, like a multi-volume set when he was like 24 what were you doing when you're 24? Probably not that. 
This guy is brilliant, right? And then there's all these other scholars, and they're brilliant. And, and so we say people smarter than us have been disagreeing and arguing about some of these things for hundreds of years. And what that also means is we know we're going to spend eternity together, and so we think we should be able to fellowship together and love each other and do life together now. And so there's some things when, that we would say when it doesn't come to the fundamental essentials of salvation through grace by faith in Jesus Christ that we would sort of hold with open hands and go, yeah, some of us might think this, some might think this. And that's okay. And so just to set this up, there's two major camps when it comes to these, the big concepts that Paul um, talks about. In, these, uh, in this scripture. One of them is Calvinism, named after John Calvin. And um, the other is Arminianism, named after another scholar that argued against John Calvin. And they had disagreements about how this all worked out. Now, Calvin had a whole system, five different points. Let's see who the Bible nerds in the room are. What are those five points? What's the acronym? TULIP. Great. And I'm not going to go through them all today because we don't have enough time uh, to, to do that all today. But a great of, of this topic, a great uh, an oversimplification, but just to help you understand and set this up, is when it comes to, to faith in Jesus, um, Calvinism would say, God chooses. Arminium, Arminianism would say, we choose. Now, that's a great over, oversimplification, okay? So don't send me any emails. We're going to dig into it a little more as we go on here. And here's the thing. This is a much bigger topic than just what it appears on the surface, because what it really boils down to, it has a lot to do with the nature and character of God and how he works in the course of history and in our lives. That's why it's a big discussion. That's why people have been arguing about it. Now, to begin with, what I want to do is set up some things that are seemingly contradictory and yet very clear in Scripture. Okay, so here we go. The first one is this. On the one hand, God plans, directs, and predetermines things according to his plan. Did you catch that? If you read through scripture, you cannot miss that. That God sets up events. He says uh, all kinds of things. In fact, I'm going to go through a bunch of scripture today. So I'm going I'm to challenge you to engage your minds. We're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, okay? And so I want you to think about this. I want you to wrestle with some of these things today. And you may want to take out a pen or, or a note app and just write these references down so that you can go home and study them a little bit more on your own because there's going to be a whole bunch of them and we're going to move quickly today. But I want to share with you a bunch of scriptures that illustrate some of these things just to give you a sample. And this is a very incomplete list. I went through a bunch of these and these are the ones that uh, I decided to, to include in the message here today. But around this idea, Isaiah, God speaking, says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says, If I determine to do something, it's going to happen. It's a done deal. I plan, I declare the end from the beginning, I accomplish my will. In fact, the apostles in Acts chapter 4, the first recorded prayer of the corporate early church, after uh, Peter and John were sternly threatened by the authorities, they have this prayer where they pray for boldness. And this is part of it. Here's what they recognize. None of this was accidental, they recognize, when it came to Jesus being crucified. 
They say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, the crucifixion of Jesus, God had actually planned in advance for the redemption of humanity. He had planned this all along, that he directed it, that he predetermined how it would happen. And actually, as you read some of the other uh, scriptures, what you, what you see in the New Testament is actually he tricked the powers, the, the spiritual forces of the enemy. He didn't unveil the plan. So they thought when they killed Jesus, they won. They lost. And when he rose from the dead, he sealed that, right? And you see this beautiful thing of not just the people involved in here that were, you know, influenced by the spiritual powers, but we're talking about he tricked the spiritual powers. And he planned it all in advance. And ultimately, it was what? Game over for the enemy, right? Now, how does that apply to our personal relationship with God? Well, you have a bunch of different scriptures. Some of these are, are the passage we just read in Ephesians, and there'll be some more in the, uh, in the next chapter. But in the book of Romans, it's one of the other primary passages that talks about this big concept. And Romans really is set up, Paul begins the book of Romans by arguing and making this great case for the fact that all people are sinful. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the fact that it was never the law that ever saved you, it was always by trusting in God. That was always the thing that saved a person, even in the Old Testament. And what has always counted was, was faith. And then he goes on, and in chapter 8, um, he, he brings the gospel in before that. And when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news, that he came after us. And then the wonderful implications of what that means for us. And, and some of those we see in Romans chapter 8. In fact, I bet a lot of your favorite verse is in Romans chapter 8. He works all things together. He, in all things, he works for the good of those who love him. You may have heard it a little different. You know, he works all things together for good, both different translations. But in Romans 8 chapter 28, we see this. He says this, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. And it goes on, it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. That he took an action, he knew ahead of time, something, and he predestined, he called, he justified. This is salvation language when you get to justification and ultimate, like, resurrection language in, in glorified, looking ahead at the glorified body of Jesus. And Paul's saying this stuff is a done deal. It's a done deal. In fact, there's many other scriptures that talk about this. John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. So Jesus says, God has to move first. God has to draw the heart. That's why in Romans, Paul says uh, there's no one that seeks God. That God takes the first step. He reveals to us information about himself, both in, in the way he created creation and his scriptures. First Peter 1. 
Peter, introducing his letter, one of his epistles in the New Testament, says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's, what's that phrase? Elect. It means chosen. How many of you like the chosen? I do. Yeah, great show. God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And he goes on to write the rest of his letter. Jesus, speaking in a passage about the end time, says this, then he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So, first thing we see throughout Scripture, and this is just a small sample representative, that God actually plans, directs, and predetermines things according to his plan. We see that. Now, the second thing that's abundantly clear in Scripture that can feel somewhat contradictory to that is this. We make real choices that matter, and we are called to respond to Jesus. This is where I, I like look at the scholars arguing, and I'm like, when you read their arguments, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Then you read the rest of the Bible, you're like, wait a minute. It's easy to build a whole argument, but then leave some of the really important scriptures out. Starting all the way back in the Old Testament, here's what, here's what God says in Deuteronomy. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if you turn your hearts away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that, that you will certainly be destroyed, and you will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You have a choice, and it matters. And it matters. In fact, Joshua gets up to the people of Israel after they enter the promised land, and he says this, and I bet some of you have this as a plaque on your wall, don't you? Who, who does out there? Joshua 24. Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I love that. That's an amazing verse. Even in the New Testament, we're instructed in Hebrews. Um, it, we're instructed. God tells us this through the author of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He's quoting the Old Testament. God is speaking. God is calling. God is drawing. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Respond. Obey. And this certainly applies that there's no greater choice than how we respond to God drawing us toward faith. In fact, here's, what, here's the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Speaking about their ministry, he says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though through God we were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
But when it comes to the work of the gospel, sharing the gospel, he says, this is really big deal. We implore you, please respond. Be reconciled to God. You, just, you, you choose how you respond to God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, we, we've seen 16. We know that one really well. We know that one by heart. But he goes on to talk about why, for some people, that doesn't happen. He goes on. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So whoever believes, whoever trusts in Jesus receives salvation. But here's the reason why that doesn't happen for everyone is because some people don't want to be in the light. Because the light exposes things in our hearts and in our lives. Acts 2.21 says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And throughout the scripture, you see this, this theme over and over and over again, that you need to respond, that you need to say yes to God. That God has given you the ability to embrace him. But you can also, it comes from him, but you can also reject him. So two things we see in Scripture. Number one, God plans, directs, and predetermines things according to his plan. Number two, we make real choices that matter, and we're called to respond to Jesus. Another way you could, a simplified way you could say that is God chooses, we choose. Right? How does this work together? How does this all come together, work together? Well, like I said, smarter people than me have been fighting and arguing about this for a long time, trying to figure this out. But I'm going to take my stab at it, okay? Because I have the microphone. So uh, you might have a different opinion. That's okay. But I have the mic, so I get to share mine. Five things to consider. I've got five things for you to consider here when it comes to this big topic of how does all this come together. God's sovereign purpose, his plan, he chooses, he predestines, we choose, we're called to respond, um, all of this. Number one, in the big passages of scripture, um, we have a tendency in the, in the U.S. to think very much about me. We're very individualistic, right? And so one of the things that we see it, for us that I think is going on in a lot, when we read a lot of these scriptures is we always think individualistically instead of people of God. So individual thinking versus people of God thinking. And so when you see Romans and Ephesians, these passages are set in a much larger con conversation on God's people, Israel, and the church regarding God's plan to graft the Gentiles, any Gentiles out there? I think we got a few, into the people of God. 
And the mystery he's going to talk about here in Ephesians is that the Gentiles are included. It's amazing. Romans 11, that's kind of where it's heading. We get grafted in. And we tend to read a lot of passages when we read them um, like this is about me individually. Why? Because in our culture, for many, it's all about me, right? We're very individualistic. When, in a, when from a Middle Eastern perspective, a Hebraic, it's much more a people. We're part of something much bigger than ourselves. What do we say around here? Um, life is for you, not about you. The story isn't about you, but you get to be included in the big story of what God's doing. So we don't write off. Now, throwing that up there, don't write off. This is the issue with thinking like, oh, okay, well, that explains it. No, because there's some personal implications that I don't think you want to write out of your personal story, like, like the next verses that come in Romans after the ones we read that maybe some are very uncomfortable about. Like this, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that means a lot to me, personally. I believe that personally, right? So don't just write those things off. But as a whole, we tend to think often individualistically and miss the larger corporate thing that God is doing in the scriptures. Number two, you got to understand in scripture that there's a difference between God's sovereign purpose and his desire. God's sovereign purpose and his desire. Have you ever thought it odd that we're told to pray? Number one, pray. If God is sovereign, why do, why do we pray? What's that all about? Have you ever thought about that? Probably, I'm sure you have. For some of you, that's why you struggle to pray. But he calls us to pray um, and says, actually, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He uses Elijah as an example. We're told over and over, pray, pray without ceasing. Jesus tells parables about how we should pray and not give up. Why? Because you have a good father. And it actually does something. Have you noticed that Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Matthew 6. What's that all about? What's the implication there? That not everything that happens on earth is what God wants, right? So we have a God who says, my sovereign purpose will prevail. When I've determined to do something, nothing will stop it. And yet what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not everything that happens is what God desires. And it's a very important thing to understand that because he did not want robots, when he created humanity, he gave us a choice to either come into loving relationship and stay in that or to rebel against them, and humanity chose to rebel. And as, as Paul will say in the next chapter, since then, spiritually, we have been dead in our trespasses and sins. The state of humanity, fallen humanity. Why? Because he, want, he wanted people, even the angels are given the, the ability to rebel. And they said, we, we don't want to just be a creature that serves God. We want to, you know, make ourselves like God. Pride rose up. Pride rose up in the heart of humanity. Not everything that happens. See, God's desire as you go through Scripture is that people would find him. Check, check some of these scriptures out. 1 Timothy 2, 4, 
God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. He wants all, he wants humanity to come back into relationship with him. It's what he wants. In fact, talking about the fact that some people are like, Jesus is never going to come back. How slow it is. It's so slow. Here's what he says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, the longer he waits, he's like, oh. uh, there's a scripture that talks about um, he's not going to come back till the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so he's like, Larry, I want Larry and my family. Larry's not in yet. I want Susie and my family. Do you come back now? No, but I want. That's the idea Peter's sharing here. He wants people to come back into relationship with him. In fact, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33 says this, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Come on, come back to me, he's saying. I don't have any pleasure in punishment. When, when, when the wicked perish, that doesn't bring me any pleasure. My heart is that they would come back to me. That's the heart of God. You know, when it comes to some of these concepts, here's, here's I think, where, where, where I know in the past I've, I've struggled with some of this is because I think it's a wrong thinking when you read some of these scriptures in the New Testament. People have interpreted it as God's up there sort of capriciously going in, out, in, out. But when you read the whole of scripture, you see his heart for humanity. Is that all would come back to him. All would come back to him. See, part of that is that Jesus died for all people. This is a major point where I, I, I differ from one of the uh, tulip points in Calvinism. 1 John 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for everybody. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Who's the offer for? All people. Who's included in all people? Raise your hand if you are. Okay, just thought I'd check. See, here's another point that, um, where I really differ from uh, some of the, the tenets of Calvinism because um, the whole of Scripture I see says that you can resist God's grace. Why? Because we just said it, because he doesn't want a bunch of robots. He's not going to make people who hate him spend eternity with him. In fact, Jesus says this, and there's a really interesting scripture in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all all people to myself. Literally, the Greek is, I will draw all to myself. And so, 
you start like combining all these scriptures and go, well, how does that all line up with the fact that we see clearly that God chooses and predestines? How does that work? Well, I think number three here, the, th- the third thing, and I've got five of these little things for you to consider, is this, that your mind cannot understand an infinite God. When we try to put together the fact that he, he chooses, and yet we, we respond in the offers to all, and his heart and desires that all would come to a knowledge of the truth, guess what? you got to understand, you're, you're like tiny little pea brain <laughs> compared to a God we can't even, who created a universe. We can't even comprehend his creation, much less the creator, right? Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. I want to teach you three very useful words in your Christian walk, okay? Everybody repeat after me. I don't know. Those three words will serve you well. And some things, as, as you comprehend God, there's things that we just cannot and will not know in this life. In fact, the Hebrews didn't have such a hard problem with this. Uh, in Hebraic thinking, they have what's called block theory, where they can hold two seemingly contradictory things in tension with each other and be like, okay, that's okay. These can both be true. Why? God's infinite. We have a lot harder time in our Western linear thinking of going, well, how can these things be? And it bothers us a lot more. But sometimes the answer is yes. Do you like steak or cheesecake? Yes. <laughs> in fact, there is a guy that wrote a book, I think, that helps us understand this concept. In 1884, his name's Edwin Abbott, and he wrote a book called Flatland, where he describes like people who lived on a two-dimensional plane, right? And all they could see was points on a line. So if you imagine like, you know, a sheet of paper being your whole existence when something intersects, all you can see are points on a line and then a sphere tried to come through it. And all of a sudden, this guy was trying to describe a sphere to people who had only seen points on a line. It's like, well, it's round. That means nothing to me. All I can tell in the way they can see as this thing came through, you know, there was one dot and then, it, then these two dots spread further apart and then it spread back together. I think that's a lot how it is with God and us, where he's like, you live in three dimensions, you know, plus, plus time. And you think you can comprehend the creator of everything that created the space-time universe that we live in, who apparently, because he sees the end from the beginning, sits outside in a way that it's in him, it's created in him, Right? Um, in, in, some of the verses we read earlier really illustrate this. I've got three verses up here. One is this. It says, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've been blessed already with every spiritual blessing. How does that work? I'm, I'm here. Or, or Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Newsflash. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Past tense in the Greek. Here you go. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's done deal, past tense. This is called the aorist tense. 
in, in Greek. It means something, it just simply occurred. It's past. It's done. And he's saying there's a deeper, truer reality about you than you can comprehend and experience right now of what Christ did for you. This is why in Isaiah, God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so now when you come to scriptures like this in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, For he chose us in him when before the creation of the world, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined, According to what? The purpose of his will. Here's, I think, the big picture that, that we can't really comprehend. But God, from his eternal standpoint and his eternal decree, when he decrees it, it's done deal, beginning to the end. It just hasn't played out yet in our life. But, but from God's perspective, it's done. It's accomplished. He spoke it. It's done. Part of that for God, and I think this is what blows our minds a little, God has the ability not just to understand every one of our decisions, like the sea, nothing surprises him, right? But he understands every permutation of every one of our decisions. <laughs> Talk about a master chess player, right? He understands it all. In fact, there's this really interesting scripture in Samuel. It's Samuel 23.10. And I'll just describe it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we'll put it up here. Uh, where David's like, hey, um, I heard Saul's coming down here. I've heard for sure. Is he going to come down? God says, yep, he will. And then David asks, will the citizens of this town surrender me and my men to Saul? God says, they will. Like, this is going to happen. And so in verse 13, it says, So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kaliah and kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kaliah, he did not go there. Now, he asked God, is this going to happen? And God says, it's going to happen. And so he changed his course. Did that throw God's plan off? No. Why? Because he understands not every decision, but also every permutation of every decision. So it didn't throw his plan off when David's like, does what every one of us would do. I'm out of here. I'm getting out of here. See, here, here's what blows my mind about God. I think that somehow when it comes to this big topic of of foreknowledge and predestination, all these, somehow in God's infinite wisdom, he sees the whole thing beginning to the end. He sees the heart and how somebody would respond and how someone will respond and all the different circumstances. And ultimately we have to go, wow, you're God and I'm not. Which brings us to the fourth thing, and that's this, that humility is required when approaching an infinite God. Paul, after this section in chapter 8, man, chapter 9 nine of Romans, go read it. It's, it's a whole argument. He says this, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. He's talking about how he like picked Jacob instead of Esau. How Pharaoh hardened his heart, then God hardened his heart, right? He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will show compassion on whomever I show compassion. 
Here's a lesson in humility. One of the best in Scripture you see is in the book of Job. Can I be honest? I have really struggled with the book of Job. I still find it really hard. Because when you read it, it's just like, it's so unfair. Anybody else feel like that? Yeah. And so for like, all this bad stuff happens to Job, and for chapters and chapters, his friends give him all sorts of idiot advice. (laughs) And finally, God speaks. First, he like judges the friend's idiot advice, and then he confronts Job. He says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Hmm. Where were you, Job? Mm, I guess I wasn't there. Then he goes on to give him like a a cosmic tour of the universe in, in Job. He goes on, he says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? See, and I think this is where we're at in our modern culture, is is we find some things very hard to understand about a God who created us without whom we don't have life. And so we think we get to judge the character of God Humility is advised when approaching God. Here's how Job replies. says, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Humility. Ultimately, when it comes to these things, God, you are God, and I am not. You are infinite. I am tiny. You are eternal. My life on this earth is but an instant in the scope of that. And somehow I think I can understand you enough to somehow try to condemn you. Humility. And see, here's what it all comes back to when you put these things together. God plans, he purposes things, but he calls us to respond to Jesus, to make a choice. And the big question, what I want to leave you with, is this, the big thing when you think of all these things and try to put them together is, what are you doing about it? And this is where, like, across the theological spectrums, we can come together and agree on this. Today, are you responding to Jesus? Are you responding to Jesus? How are you responding to Jesus now? I'm going to invite Winston up. In just a minute, we're going to close with a song. How are you responding to Jesus now? He, he so loved to the one. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life believes in. It's the idea of actively trusting in. 
of, of the stool that I can sit. Not just like, yeah, there's a stool there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust it. I'm going to sit in it. I'm going to respond to him. I'm going to trust him. When he speaks to me, I'm going to obey. I'm going to listen and respond. See, ultimately, the question comes down to today. You know, today is all you have. The past is gone. The future is not guaranteed. Today is all you have right now, isn't it? What are you doing with what God is speaking to you today? What are you doing with what he's saying about your life in his word today? He loves you. He wants you. But you still have to respond to him. You still have to say yes. Um, A number of years ago when I was a kid, it's my brother. He's a couple years younger than me and myself. I think I was maybe 10 at the time or something like that, 10 or 12. I can't really remember. But my parents really felt led towards adoption. So they went through the whole process. And then um, there was this kid down in New Mexico named Joe. He was 15. And uh, my parents began to make moves to adopt him into our family. He was in the foster system. And we flew down there and we met him and went to Carlsbad Caverns and and had these great adventures, and then he flew up and spent Christmas with us. And man, our family just fell in love with Joe. And my dad, he wanted Joe in our family. He was invited. We were ready to adopt him. But ultimately, Joe, um, Joe began to think, I'm so close to being 18. I don't really know if I want to take the step of jumping into a new family. And Joe decided he wasn't going to come join our family. You know, that was Joe's choice, wasn't it? He was wanted. He was loved. He was invited. That's why I think the word of the Lord for you today is this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today. What are you doing with what he's speaking to you today? Would you stand? And I think there's two real applications of this. The first one is for some in the room, maybe you've never responded by actively placing your trust in Jesus. And today, as we've shared this, it's like, wow, I believe it. I want to invite you to respond by giving your life to him. By, by saying, I'm going to embrace you as my Lord and Savior, I believe. And, and if that's you in the room, why don't you just pray a prayer like this with me? Lord Jesus, I need you. I know I've sinned and cannot make it to God on my own. So save me and give me your life. I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died and rose again for me. I want to follow you with my life. And as we sing, if you're on the other side of that decision, why don't you, um, just in the recognition that you are chosen, that you are loved, that you are part of his family, why don't you sing this song with worship and with gratitude in your hearts? And respond to maybe the thing that he's speaking to to you about today in your hearts and lives. Let's sing.